This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Amelia Dyer. Amelia Elizabeth Hobley was born in 1837, but the exact date is unknown. She was born in a small village just east of Bristol called Pile Marsh in England. And, as we always do, let's see what was going on in the area at that time. This time in England was known as the beginning of the Victorian era because that year Victoria became the Queen of the United Kingdom after her uncle, King William IV, had died. During this time, there was a very strong religious-based push for people to have higher moral standards. During this time, once a woman was married, she actually no longer existed in the eyes of the law. She was, quote, one person with her husband. Anything she owned prior to the marriage was then transferred to him. Any children they had, in case of a divorce, stayed with their father. He retained custody. Also during this time, we begin to see the infancy of medical science. Miracle medicines of the day were things like opiates and cocaine, and they were used to treat everything from you know, a toothache, to coughs, to diarrhea, or even insomnia. At that time, they did not know how dangerous these drugs actually were. So, the ideology of the time was turning from rationalism to romanticism, and even mysticism. Politics were becoming very liberal, with people calling for political reform. The population of England, as well as Wales and Scotland, nearly doubled during this time. However, Ireland's population was declining quickly due to the Great Famine. They began to move to the United States, as well as other countries. 
So this era saw a rapid increase in the middle class and respectability was quite important. If you wanted to be a businessman, you had better be trustworthy, not display reckless behaviors such as heavy drinking and gambling. At the same time, people were more charitable, more self-disciplined both at work and at home, and it was a time where people were beginning to stop and reflect on themselves and their own behaviors to redirect and improve themselves. Public schooling became more popular during this time. As far as entertainment, well, that depended on your social standing. Literature was always popular and considered important. Theater and the arts, music and operas were very popular. Sports were becoming a lot more popular too, such as cricket, croquet, horse riding, and swimming or water sports. These usually started in the public schools and were a sign of, quote, manliness. And while this was a great time of expansion and prosperity for the region, there was still a great deal of poverty. People moved into the cities in the more industrialized areas with the promise of a livable wage much faster than the construction for housing could even get completed. This, of course, resulted in overcrowding and sanitation issues. Some areas became what we now know as the slums, or what were then called the slums. Sometimes up to 30 people would occupy one large room. So while this was a time of prosperity, it still had a lot of issues. So Amelia's parents were Samuel Hobley and Sarah Weymouth. Samuel was born in 1797 and Sarah in 1806. So that means Samuel was nine years older than her. And they married on August 20th, 1922 in St. Stephen's in Bristol. Samuel was 25 at the time. Sarah was just 16. The couple had five children in total two girls and three boys. Amelia was the youngest of the five. Samuel indeed carved out a really respectable middle-class existence for his wife and children as a master shoemaker and was well known for his advanced skill even outside of their local area. For those times, Samuel, Sarah, and the children would have been considered pretty privileged. In 1841, when Amelia was just four years old, her six-year-old sister, Sarah Ann, died, but of what I couldn't find. Then in 1845, when Amelia was eight years old, her mother gave birth to another little girl that they named Sarah Ann, you know, after the oldest daughter, but the baby died when it was just a few months old. And again, I was not able to find what the baby had died from. Amelia herself was a very intelligent child. She learned to read and write quickly, and she loved poetry and literature. The Hobley children went to good schools, and they had a good life. 
but their happy, quiet existence would not last long. Sarah, the mother, contracted typhus, which, according to Healthline.com, is a disease caused by infection with one or more specific bacteria. Fleas, mites, body lice, and or ticks carry it, and they pass it to the host through their bite. The bite, of course, begins to itch, and so people naturally scratch it. And this creates a break in the skin and allows the bacteria to get deeper into the skin and ever closer to the bloodstream. And once it gets in the blood, folks, that's it. The symptoms of typhus are severe headache, chills, a spreading rash, very high fever, confusion, low blood pressure, severe muscle pain, light sensitivity in the eyes, along with the person seeming to be out of touch with reality. Now, Sarah suffered terribly with this and would go into these violent rages as the infection got worse. The children unfortunately suffered the consequences of some of her fits, but Amelia did what she knew she had to, and she cared for her mother, who died a, quote, raving lunatic in 1848. Amelia was just 11 years old. So before she was even a teenager, she had lost her only sister, a newborn baby sister, and now her mother. She began to show signs of depression, and so her father sent her to live with an aunt in Bristol so that she would have you know, the female influence that he felt she needed instead of being with her three brothers and her father. But her aunt was good to her, and Amelia slowly began to feel better. During this time, nearly all women wore corsets, which, if you don't know, it's a tightly fitting undergarment that goes from just below the breasts down to the hips to cinch in the waist and make it appear much, much smaller. And even though they are very hard to breathe in due to the lungs not really having enough room to fully, completely expand, it was the fashion of the time, and there are people that still wear them today. Now, while at her aunt's, Amelia began an internship with a corset maker, learning how to make them and how to make them beautiful with the idea that this would be her career. She spent her teen years with her aunt, and life was good for the girl. But in 1859, her father died. The now 22-year-old Amelia's eldest brother, Thomas, inherited, and quite frankly, completely took over the family business, which was quite successful. So that's Amelia's childhood. Let's take a look. She was born into what seemed to be a normal family with a good reputation and well-respected within and outside of their community. While there really isn't any information on her family history itself, the picture painted by all sources show that no one showed any outward signs of mental illness, abuse, or neglect. Of course, her mother's was due to an illness. 
Samuel himself was hardworking, intelligent, and ran a successful business. Sarah was a stay-at-home mother with her children. The children learned to read and write, which was excellent, considering only about 50% of people were literate in the United Kingdom at that time. Amelia was set up for what appeared to be a very successful future. She lost her sister, that was two years older than her, when she was only four years old. Children that lose a beloved sibling suffer terribly. They feel a sort of survivor's remorse, guilt, abandonment, and the younger siblings can develop fears and even anxiety. They can also have trouble sleeping, body pain, digestive symptoms, and horrible, horrible nightmares. Then Amelia faced the death of an infant sister as well, and not long after, her mother became very ill, both physically and mentally, from the typhus. So how could this have affected her? According to Psychology Today, we have attachment theory, which is basically the need to form a strong attachment to at least one primary caregiver who will provide that unconditional love and support that every child needs in order to grow up to have healthy relationships in the future. So based on this theory, children that lose a parent and having to live with the prolonged grief of their loss, it can cause long-term emotional problems due to their failure to resolve their sense of loss. They can develop depression, anxiety, they can become withdrawn, begin to have behavioral problems. The long-term effects show that these children have difficulty in being able to have intimate or long-term relationships. Now, interestingly, whether or not children develop problems later most often depends on how the surviving parent helps that child overcome their grief and teaches them to move on with their lives. But Amelia's father didn't help her. He shipped her off to live with an aunt. Now granted, he most likely did this thinking it would be better for her rather than be surrounded by all of these boys and no female influence. But she very well may have wanted and needed her father. So we can see that while there's no evidence of inherited mental illness, and quite clearly she was born into a good family with at least some influence. She was educated and literate, but she suffered loss after loss from a very young age, and that had to have affected her immensely. So after the death of her father... She began to have disagreements with her brothers, though no source really specifically states what it was about. Now, I suspect that it might have had something to do with the rather successful shoemaking business that her brothers had taken over and that she had not inherited a thing. Regardless of the catalyst, she became forever estranged from her brothers. At 24 years old, Amelia moved into a lodging house in Bristol, and while there, she met a man by the name of George Thomas. He was 59 years old, 35 years her senior. 
Their courtship was a short one and they soon married. George helped her get into nursing school where she studied to become a nurse. Now, back in those days, being a nurse was very difficult work. Now, that's not to say that current nursing is not difficult work because we all know they are underpaid and underappreciated for sure. But back then, it was the but back then the job description for nurses was quite a bit different. So I actually found the rules and here's what they said. Number one, daily sweep and mop the floors of your ward, dust the patient's furniture and window sills. Number two, maintain an even temperature in your ward by bringing in a scuttle of coal for the day's business. Number three, Light is important to observe the patient's condition. Therefore, each day fill the kerosene lamps, clean chimneys, and trim wicks. Number four, the nurse's notes are important in aiding your physician's work. Make your pens carefully. You may whittle nibs to your individual taste. Number five, each nurse on day duty. Number five, each nurse on day duty will report every day at 7 a.m. and leave at 8 p.m., except on the Sabbath, on which day she will be off from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Number six, graduate nurses in good standing with the director of nurses will be given an evening off each week for courting purposes, or two evenings a week if you go regularly to church. Number seven, each nurse should lay aside some each payday, a goodly sum of her earnings for her benefits during her declining years so that she will not become a burden. For example, if you earn $30 a month, you should set aside 15. Number eight, any nurse who smokes, uses liquor in any form, gets her hair done at a beauty shop, or frequents dance halls will give the director of nurses good reason to suspect her worth, intentions, and integrity. And lastly, number nine, the nurse who performs her labors and serves her patients and doctors faithfully and without fault for a period of five years will be given an increase by the hospital administration of five cents per day. Now, needless to say, it was grueling work, but it was a respectable occupation and it taught her a lot of useful things. Through being a nurse, Amelia met a woman who worked as a midwife by the name of Ellen Jane. Ellen told her of a much easier way to earn a good wage. You see, there were a lot of what they called illegitimate births back in that day. Getting pregnant when you weren't married was a huge taboo, and the babies were generally not accepted by the families. The women faced being banished from her family if the father refused to marry her. So unmarried mothers during Victorian England struggled to make any livable wage because a law had removed any financial responsibility the fathers had of their illegitimate children. Not to mention being a single parent was kind of looked down upon. 
So this led to a boom in what they called, quote, baby farms. People would open their homes to these women and keep the babies there while the women would pay the owners, you know, of the home a fee to take care of their baby. This, of course, was much better than the alternative, which could have meant death from neglect, malnutrition, and so on. And with Amelia's background in nursing, she knew she'd be highly sought after. Also around this time, Amelia, now 32 years old, became pregnant with her first daughter, Ellen Thomas, who was born in 1869. Not long after, her elderly husband died. She had to quit nursing completely and threw herself into being a caregiver to other women's unplanned babies. Amelia advertised her services. She met potential clients and assured them that she was a highly skilled nurse, a loving wife to a respectable husband with a good home. It was obvious that she was well-spoken, well-mannered, and was educated to anyone who knew her, so the parents felt that she was an excellent person to leave their babies with. She immediately began taking in unwed pregnant mothers as well as infants for either a substantial one-time payment or smaller monthly payments as well as extra clothes for the baby and so on. Once the woman gave birth or she had the new baby brought to her, she either found families to adopt them or she would let them slowly starve of malnutrition or overdose them on drugs. The easiest way she found to do this was to administer either alcohol or opiates to the infant. Usually she gave them what they called in that day, quote, mother's friend, which was a syrup containing opium, but other substances were used also. The opium kept the babies quiet and they would often overdose, or if it didn't kill them, it curbed their feelings of hunger and they slowly starved to death. Amelia did this to be able to pocket the money, but eliminate the expense. Now, if she even bothered to report the death, the coroner would usually always rule the death, quote, debility from birth or, quote, lack of thriving. If a mother would happen to show up to see her infant to either visit or reclaim the baby, Amelia would give them excuses of either the baby being adopted out or she would, quote, regret to inform them that their baby had died. If the mothers suspected anything, what could they do? The entire reason that they had even left their baby there was to keep it hush-hush, to keep from ruining their reputation and so forth. They were either too scared or too ashamed to tell the police. And by the off chance that the police were alerted, they had issues tracing any of the children reported missing. In 1872, Amelia married her second husband, William Dyer. He was a laborer at the brewing company. She then went on to have two more children, Mary Ann, sometimes called Polly, and William Samuel. 
so she continued to take on the responsibility of these babies, taking the money happily and ensuring that the woman's baby would be well taken care of. She would then quickly murder the child. It is horrifying to know that it took 11 years of this before a doctor who had been called to Amelia's house several times finally became suspicious of the number of babies he had to certify as deceased. He alerted the police who investigated and arrested her. At her trial, she was only convicted of neglect and sentenced to six months of hard labor. Now, supposedly, this pushed her over the edge mentally. You know, air quotes here. Others say she played it up. But regardless, it was reported that she attempted suicide twice while in prison and became deeply depressed. Once she was released, she tried to go back to being a nurse, but she was just not interested anymore. She moved to a new area and went right back to baby farming. She would assure the mother that her baby would be fine. Then not long after, shutting the door, she strangled the baby with a ribbon or strip of cloth or this dress tape uh, instead of contacting the local doctor to verify the death. And then she would just simply get rid of the body. Now keep in mind that from the beginning when she was giving the babies the quote mother's friend opium syrup, she too was partaking in that substance. And along with that, she had begun to drink excessively. Then when suspicions arose, she would conveniently feign a mental breakdown to get herself committed to an asylum. Being a former nurse, she fully understood that if she played the game right, she'd be left alone and have a somewhat comfortable time there. Then she would miraculously show improvement, be released, move to a new location, start completely over. And this was Amelia's pattern. So in 1890, Amelia was called on to take care of the illegitimate baby of a governess. And a governess is a woman who is employed by a family with money to be both nanny and a teacher for their children. And this particular governess desperately loved and wanted her baby and went back to visit her infant. Amelia let her in her home and she brought her a baby. The governess looked at that baby and immediately knew it was not hers. She looked at the baby's hip where there should have been a birthmark and there wasn't one there. She alerted the police and now Amelia immediately and conveniently feigned yet another mental breakdown and tried to commit suicide by drinking two bottles of laudanum. And folks, laudanum is no joke. It is a tincture or medication that contains around 10% powdered opium. It actually has almost all of the opium alkaloids, such as morphine and codeine. It was prescribed as a pain reliever and cough suppressant. The problem was, she had been abusing this drug for so long that she had built up a tolerance so she didn't die. So, at now 54 years old, 
she was admitted to another asylum and then was eventually released, but this last stint in the asylum had been a, quote, most disagreeable experience, and she never went back to another one. She packed up her life. She moved to Caversham, Berkshire, with a friend that she had recruited in helping her with the farming of these babies. So at this point, also, her children were nearly grown. But then a year later, she was forced to move yet again to Reading, Berkshire. And the once quite pretty young Amelia was now a visibly haggard and aging woman. After years and years of abusing opiates and alcohol, her face had changed into an older woman who wore a constant scowl. In January 1896, the now 59-year-old Amelia received a reply to her advertisement, but she was using the name Mrs. Harding at the time. In January 1896, the now 59-year-old Amelia received a reply to her advertisement in the Bristol Times and Mirror newspaper, but at that point she was going by the name Mrs. Harding. And Amelia wrote back, quote, I should be glad to have a dear little baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. We are plain, homely people in fairly good circumstances. I don't want a child for money's sake, but for company and home comfort. Myself and my husband are dearly fond of children. I have no children of my own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love, unquote. So the baby's mother, Evelina, agreed to pay the 10-pound sum, and a week later, Amelia showed up to her home. Evelina wanted her baby desperately, but she knew she couldn't take care of that baby. She had every intention of getting her daughter back as soon as she was able to, but she reluctantly handed the infant over to Amelia along with her payment and some clothes. She actually went with Amelia to the train station and then returned home completely distraught. After a few days, Evelina got a letter from Amelia stating that all was well with her daughter to which Evelina replied her gratefulness and despair. But then Amelia never wrote back. She had already killed that baby. She took some white edging tape that is used in dressmaking. She wrapped it around the baby's neck and tied a knot. And unfortunately, this didn't kill them quickly. Amelia later stated, quote, I used to like to watch them with the tape around their neck, but it was soon all over for them." Unquote. Amelia then wrapped the body in a small cloth. She took some of the clothes and pawned them off for more money. Then after killing yet another baby, well, he was a year old at the time, she took both bodies put them in a carpet bag, which was just a large carrying bag made out of fancy rugs. And she also added bricks to the bag to make sure it was good and heavy. She then dropped the bag into the River Thames. 
But then, on March 30, 1896, a man working on a barge saw a strange package in the river. So he fished it out, he opened it, and then quickly realized it was a baby girl. He frantically and immediately alerted the police. The detectives began working the case with what little bit of evidence they had, but they did get a breakthrough. The packaging had a label that was barely legible, but they could make out the name Thomas and an address. Now, this ultimately led them to Amelia, but they didn't have enough to arrest her right then and there. So, they put her under surveillance and began interviewing potential witnesses. They also knew that she would be a flight risk. So, the decision was made to send a woman to Amelia to meet with her regarding her taking another infant. This was a decoy, by the way. Amelia agreed to meet with the woman and invited her to her house. But when she answered the knock on her door, instead she found the detectives standing right there. They raided her house and was immediately met with this overwhelming smell of human decomposition. But after a pretty detailed search, they actually never found any remains within the home. But what they did find was white edging tape that matched the tape around the infant that was found. They found correspondence about adoptions. They found a lot of pawn tickets for baby clothing, as well as several letters from mothers asking about their children. Now, given the evidence, the investigators determined that at least 20 children had been given to Amelia to care for in just the past few months alone. They also saw that she was about to move to Somerset. So if she had kept this pace of murder throughout the years that she was doing it, the experts estimate that she may well have killed over 400 babies over her years as a baby farmer she was promptly arrested and taken in. Now, Evelina, you know, the distraught mother who had just recently given Amelia her baby girl to care for, was forced to identify her daughter's remains. Awful. So here is a statement from Amelia Dyer on April 16th, 1896. Sir, will you kindly grant me the favor of presenting this to the magistrates on Saturday the 18th, the instant I have made this statement out, for I may not have the opportunity, then I must relieve my mind. I do know and I feel my days are numbered on this earth, but I do feel it is an awful thing drawing innocent people into trouble. I do know I shall have to answer before my Maker in heaven for the awful crimes I have committed, but God Almighty is my judge in heaven and on earth. Neither my daughter Mary Ann Palmer nor her husband Alfred Ernest Palmer I do most solemnly declare 
Neither of them had anything at all to do with it. They never knew I contemplated doing such a wicked thing until it was too late. I am speaking the truth and nothing but the truth as I hope to be forgiven. I myself and I alone must stand before my maker in heaven to give an answer for it all witness my hand. Amelia Dyer. Unquote. The next month during her trial, Amelia pled guilty, but her lawyer wanted her defense to be insanity, considering she had been committed to mental asylums in the past. But the prosecution argued that she used the asylums to avoid suspicion, considering her admittance into them were shortly before she was about to be detected. And also, she showed signs of knowing what she did was wrong because she moved so many times. So the jury only took a few minutes to find her guilty, and she was executed by hanging on June 10, 1896. Amelia was 59 years old. So, there really isn't any clear evidence that Amelia suffered from any specific mental health issues during her childhood, even though she lived through the early deaths of two sisters and her mother. She established her earliest baby farming business out of her home city of Bristol in the late 1860s. The first documented incident of possible psychological problems actually arose in 1879 when a coroner opened an investigation into the deaths of four babies in Amelia's care following a suspicious death certificate. When police went to Dyer's house to take her in for questioning, they found that she had taken a laudanum overdose which prevented her from appearing, obviously. This was the first in a series of drastic actions taken by her seemingly to avoid the law. A psychologist at the time evaluated Amelia and said that she did not suffer from what they used to call, quote, homicidal mania, that she was not clinically insane when she committed the murders. But, interestingly, her daughter, Marianne, gave statements about how her mother seemed to be two people. One moment she would be quiet and withdrawn. Then the next she would be extremely violent and had actually threatened her own daughter's life several times. But since this is an old case and the fact that she gave no real reason for murdering these children, it becomes difficult to speculate why she became a serial killer. Her daughter offered us a very tiny tidbit about her normal mental state, but it's just not enough to form any reliable or concrete diagnosis of any particular mental illness. So then we get to the age-old question, was she born to kill or conditioned to? And I have to say that it's hard to say with any degree of confidence. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at Serial underscore Killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. 
you can visit my website at SerialKilling.Squarespace.com and also considering sponsoring the podcast. It takes so much time to put this together, but I love doing it for you. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you sincerely, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.